Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. Morning, Harvest Ridge. Good morning online, all you viewing. So glad to see those of you that are able to be here today. Hey, what a great day. You know, first service, uh, we had a group leaving uh, to go on a, a short event. So it's like every, uh, every family was here first service. I'm looking at you guys thinking, all the way in the back, you guys should move up. <laughs> Y'all ready to begin? If you got a Bible, open with me, please, please. You're going to want to walk through your Bible today. We're in Romans chapter 11. We're going to be in Romans 11 today. Um, I'm excited to preach. Um, we've got a couple more weeks left to go in the sermon series on Romans. And then we get to start a, a whole message called the power of the party. I'm looking forward to that one. Jesus at parties makes a difference. So, um, all right. So my child said the other day, he said, Dad, can you tell me what a solar eclipse is? I said, no, son. You know, recently I was kidnapped by a gang of mimes. They threatened to do unspeakable things. <laughs> uh, would y'all stand to your feet in honor of God's word today? We're, um, we're going to be walking through Romans 11. Um, Romans 11 is actually the ending of a section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and that entire section uh, is dealing with specifically, has God forgotten the Jewish people? And what is God's uh, thoughts towards the Jewish people and the Jewish race? And this chapter 11 is going to wrap it all up and bring it to a conclusion before he goes on and handles a couple of pastoral remarks about how we're to live together afterwards. But um, I, I just want you to know that I've been sort of broken up specifically thinking about this passage today, wrestling with this passage um, because I, I, what I chose to do is instead of taking it two or three different ways I could take it, I chose to take this one statement, which I believe sort of summarizes the entire chapter, and us focus on it. It's verse 22. It says this, Consider therefore, consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. We like to think about his kindness. But we need to consider as well that God is incredibly stern. He is kind, he is loving, but he is also stern. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. It's a sobering statement. Very sobering. That God is saying, he can cut you off. Father, I pray that today you would speak to us through these words. I pray that our hearts would be open. I pray that you would speak and we would hear and we would be broken with the understanding that we serve not only a kind God, but also a very stern God. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Air high five somebody before you sit down. There you go. Give my air high five online. Give me air high five and then you can take a seat this morning. Um, you know, uh, there was a guy named Jonathan Edwards, and Jonathan Edwards, um, when I was in college, he, 
preached a sermon that sort of kicked off, was the, the igniting spark that kicked off the uh, Great Awakening in America. And the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And when I was in college, I read it. And I, I remember reading it, thinking about him, this guy reading it. You see, he was blind almost. I, I mean, he's worse than me. I had LASIK a few years ago, and I still have to wear glasses. But this guy, I mean, he, he hand wrote his manuscript, and he would stand at the pulpit and read it like this. So it wasn't his powerful presentation. He was reading the manuscript. And as I was reading this text of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I was like, wow. He was painting this picture of like we're a spider on a spider web a very thin web and we're hanging and dangling over the abyss of hell and the fires of hell and the heat are licking at the spider web holding us and keeping us from dropping into the fire and burning forever because of God's wrath on us. And I was like, wow, dude, that's intense. Uh, it's intense. When you're reading the manuscript 200 years later and you think it's intense, it's intense, right? And there's something to be said about that understanding of the sternness of God that awakened a, a great national revival that I think we have lost in our culture because Jesus is nothing more than a boyfriend to most people in our culture today. We sing songs that you could sing to your boyfriend and or to God and there's no difference in between and that you turn on Christian radio and you hear stuff that you're not sure if we're talking about God or her boyfriend. And I always hate songs like that because Jesus is not my boyfriend. Something just ain't going to be happening in my lifetime. <laughs> all right. Y'all can laugh at me. It's all right. But when we talk about the sternness of God and being cut off, there's a big question. And the question is this. Has Israel gone too far? But I think it actually presses some buttons in us. When we talk about being cut off, have I gone too far? Now, there is a line that you go too far. We had a Dodge Caravan years ago. I don't know if you guys know anything about Dodge Caravans. But they're good for about 120,000 miles, and then they start falling apart. This one was pushing about 100 and plenty. I think we were at 200 when we got rid of it. And this caravan, it was, it, it was all city miles, so it was no like over-the-road miles, so everything was breaking in it. And finally, one day, it was winter, and my wife was driving down the road, and the, the block or something went wrong in the heating block, and she is driving in January in Northeast Ohio, and the heater goes out. And I, I'm like, she didn't tell me. And I got in the van a couple days later and I saw her put a blanket on her lap. I'm like, what are you doing? And she said, I'm driving the van. And I said, Where, turn on the heat. And she said, it doesn't work. And I'm like, what? Because you see, I'm a very cheap guy, but my wife might be the only cheaper person I've ever met in my entire life. So we're like, we're like super duper duper cheap and I'm riding in this van and she's got a cold and her nose is dripping and I'm like, and it wasn't even COVID, she was cold and sick and all this and I'm like, what are you doing? And she said, well, you, we can make it a few more months out of this one. I'm like, no, we're done with this van. Within two weeks, we had a replacement. Do you know why? Because we were done with the van, there, there, there was a line and a limit where you just don't put up with it anymore, right? Now, th that works for lawnmowers or, you know, it, some, uh, yeah, works for lawnmowers, works for, I don't know, um, cars, refrigerators, things like that. You know, 
God wants us to be refrigerator faithful. Do you know what that is? You do not have a refrigerator that's faithful six out of seven days of the week and you still keep it. Am I correct? God wants you to be refrigerator faithful. He wants to be able to depend on you every day, not just six out of seven days or one out of every, anyway. When is it past fixing? When does it go too far? When do you get a new one? When does, when does that happen? This is necessary for us to think about because there is a cutoff point for all of us. There's a cutoff. Now, it's one thing when we talk about it with a car, but what if we're talking about our body? There, there comes a point where our bodies say no more too. Or what if, we're, what if we're talking about a relationship or a marriage? Well, it gets really tense. Is there a line? There's a point where I just can't do this anymore? What if it is your salvation? And God says, no, I'm just not going to put up with you anymore. Is there a line where it's past fixing? We live in a throwaway world, and I think some of us, we tend to be naturally more towards the throwaway culture than we are the fix it and work on it culture. In the throwaway culture, we, we just throw away. The average American today produces 4.51 pounds of trash a day. In the 1960s, that was 2.68 pounds a day, four and a half pounds a day. That's nearly double what it was in the 1960s. And I will guarantee you that is probably double what it was or triple what it was just a few years before in the Great Depression. Because I had a grandpa that lived through the Great Depression. And you could say to him, hey, grandpa, do you have a 1964 hubcap off of a Ford Mercury or Ford whatever? And he'd say, oh, I got one of those around here somewhere. Anybody know anybody like that? If they've ever, if it's ever touched their hand, they have it somewhere. My grandpa grew up in the Great Depression and he found a way to use everything 14 times. But we live in a throwaway world. Our throwaway world is if it gets my hand, you know, if I get an iPhone 9 and iPhone 10 comes out, I need a new one. We live in a throwaway world where whatever we get, you know, it's disposable. It just goes away and we don't know how to work on making something usable for a while. That's the reason we have a new generation that's raised up that new atheism is the way it is. You know, God disappointed me, therefore I throw him away. Listen, listen, if God disappoint you, maybe you need to throw away your view of God, but not throw away God. Because God may not be the boyfriend God, you know, it makes you feel good all the time. He might actually be a God that, oh, let me see, might be in danger of cutting you off if you don't listen to him. Are y'all awake? Somebody online say, amen, help me out here. There's the new atheism that throws God away. We reject God out of our arrogance, but then there's the others that fear that God throws them away out of their own insecurity. Some out of their arrogance reject God, but God is, is feared by some out of their own insecurity that they're going to be rejected. And somewhere in between there, we fall in those lines. I'm either arrogant, I don't need God, or I'm insecure, God doesn't need me. And this passage today tells us to keep a balance between the two. Remember the kindness, but also remember the sternness of God. The question reveals a real struggle in us. Some of us don't fear being thrown away because we don't throw things away. Anybody have a shirt in your drawer? Come on, anybody have a shirt in your drawer or closet that you've looked at it 15 times and thought, I should throw that away? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Do you have, I have a t-shirt drawer. Been there, done that, got the, come on. T-shirt to prove it, right? Years ago, I was in Mexico, years and years and years and years ago, and it was on my bucket list that I wanted to scuba dive. 
So I took the lessons, I paid the money, and I went and scuba dived. Now, I would like to tell you it was an incredible event and time in my life, and it was world-shattering and awesome, but I'll tell you, it was miserable, and I didn't really enjoy it, but I did it. And I got the T-shirt to prove it. All right, y'all with me? So I had this T-shirt to prove it, and I have this T-shirt, and I wear it for years because I'm proud of it. I mean, it was a bucket list thing, and I wear it. Well, it was white, and then it started getting stains, and then it started getting stains on its stains. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And, and I just kept folding that t-shirt up, I'd wash it and put it in the drawer and I'd pull it out and look at it and think, you know, this thing's old. I should probably throw it away. And finally, one day my wife says to me, you haven't been wearing that thing. Why do you still have it? And I threw it away. And some of us are like that when we, we sort of think of God like that. God's willing to put up all of our mess and all of our junk and all of our garbage. And he just puts us in a shelf somewhere and says, I, I don't really care about them. I'll just leave them over there. And I'll tell you that God's not into that kind of relationship with you. Just because we never make hard calls doesn't mean God doesn't. Remember the kindness and sternness. Consider, think about, dwell upon. The word in the Greek literally means for you to ruminate on the kindness and the sternness of God. He's both kind and stern. Now, I understand this because I had a dad that was both. My dad was one of the most incredible, loving, kind, gentle people you would ever meet in your life. He would go the extra mile for anybody, anytime, anywhere. One of the most amazing men you would ever meet in your life. I never questioned his love. Never once in my entire life did I question whether or not my dad loved me. But I will tell you that when I was 19 years old, my brother and I and my wife were sitting around the dinner table at our house and dad was there and mom was there and my wife said something funny and we got in a little bit of a laughing fit and got a little out of control laughing too much. And my dad, as I'm 19, looks over at me and David and says, boys, that's enough. And you know what happened to a 24 year old and a 19 year old boy? They both shut up immediately. Do you know why? Because my dad spoke. My dad was one of those guys you just didn't mess with. You loved my dad, but you did not mess with my dad. My dad was six foot four, went about 220, 225, and he was one of those sinewy, strong kind of guys that I never saw him grab anything that didn't move. I don't care what it was, it moved when my dad grabbed it. And when my, my dad said to you enough, you listened because my dad was a perfect example to me of kindness but sternness. And I think there's something to be said in our culture that we need, I believe, come on, can I just talk to you for a second? I believe our culture is trying to feminize men to get rid of the view of kindness and sternness can work together. Do you know what a man is supposed to be? A man is supposed to be steel wrapped in velvet. You're supposed to not bend or break or be wimpy, but you're supposed to be gentle to the touch. And I believe our culture is trying to undermine that character in men. And I believe that God wants men to once again stand up and understand that kindness and sternness need to live in the same body and in the same human. And we need to teach our kids that God is kind and stern. And we do that by setting an example for them. So let's look at this. First of all, kindness. The first attribute of God we're to consider is kindness. So this chapter tries to bring a final theological 
reason for the unity between Jews and Gentiles. There's a pastoral concern, there's a theological concern, and Paul is addressing the theological issue about why Jews and Gentiles are to be able to coexist and work together in the same church that one is not better than the other, but they are both equally preferred by God in the same space. And the big question is this, he's going to present it in Romans 11.1. 1. I ask then, did God reject his people and then he answers, Meganoito, by no means, no way, no way God hasn't rejected. But the question is this, did God reject the Jewish people? So since the Jews were God's chosen people and Jesus came as their Messiah, but the Jews as a whole chose to reject their Messiah, the question then is, is God done with the Jews since he opened up the floodgates for Gentiles to receive the gospel? And Paul answers, no, he is not done with the Jews, and I will give you two illustrations. Number one, the first illustration is Paul himself. Now, Paul was a person that had rejected Jesus, that had even persecuted Christians, had fought against Christianity, and has said Jesus is not the Messiah, and had even put to death those who did say Jesus was the Messiah. But Paul himself says in chapter 11, verse one, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. There's that foreknowledge again, go back a couple of weeks and we've talked about that several times. So God knew that Paul would be open to the gospel and even though Paul was a goof up and a mess up, and even though Paul was a violent persecutor of Christianity, Jesus still reached out and showed love to Paul and saved him. And Paul is an example that not all Jews are rejected because he, a rejecting Jew, had to receive Christ. But he also gives a second example, and the next example is that of Elijah. He says, Elijah thought one time he was the only one left. And it's in uh, Romans 11, 2. Don't you know that scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed all your prophets and torn down all your altars. And I am the only one left. Anybody ever feel that way? I'm the only one left. I'm the only one doing the right thing. If you ever feel that way, let me just remind you that that's why we have church. That's the reason during COVID we fought so hard to keep the church doors open is because you need other people around you reminding you that you're not alone in this fight. And I want to encourage you one other step. If you just attend, would you go the next step? Would you get in a life group? Would you get in a small group where there are people in that small group that love you and pray for you and, and are forced to interact with you and you got to actually talk to them and they're so weird and, and they're so annoying and you have to love them anyway. I know, I know nobody likes going to life groups. Everybody loves the philosophy of it, but nobody likes doing it because then you have to actually interact with the real people. And if you hang out with me more than five minutes, you'll find out I'm weird and you're weird and we're all weird and we get together in a room and we realize how weird we really are and it's uncomfortable. And nobody wants to do life groups even though everybody says we should. Am I correct? Of course I am. I know, I've pastored, I've done this a long time. So you know what I want you to do? I want you to suck it up, buttercup. Go to a life group. Put your little gentleness on the shelf and go get involved with somebody. 
Put your inhibitions on the shelf. Be weird, accept their weirdness, love them, pray with them. Listen, God, I can't tell you the number of times over the last several months that I've, I've been in prayer, walking back and forth in this room, you know? I love the space chairs. I can walk right through them and they don't bug me anymore. As I'm walking back and forth in these rooms praying, I'll see some of your faces and I'll pray for you. And I, I wish there was a way I could text every one of you every single time I pray for you, but I pray for you often. And as I think about you and I pray for you, I just want you to know you're not alone. Somebody's there with you. Somebody's praying for you. And if you get in a life group, you get a couple more there with you too. So he said, I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me too. And how did God answer Elijah when he said he was the only one? He said this, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. You know what that means? Elijah thought he was alone, but he wasn't. There were 7,000 others standing with him. And there's a truth here, and this is a scriptural truth I want you to put in your brain. It's called remnant theology. God will always have a remnant. Romans 11:5 says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. If it is by grace, then it cannot be by works. If it were grace, uh, if it were by works, then grace would no longer be grace. So there is a remnant that God chose by grace. Now I'm reading a book. Uh, I just finished it. It's called The Insanity of God. And it's a story about Christians who have followed Jesus around the world in times of uh, difficulty, in times of struggle, and in times of persecution. Now, this book about persecution, the guy goes and visits um, a house church leaders in China. While he's there in China, these house church leaders, they're, uh, they're uh, about 100 to 150 of them, I believe he said in the book, that, that are gathered and they've gathered in the secret location way out in the middle of nowhere in a compound and they're there to be worshiped together, to be encouraged and strengthened. If they get caught, they're all going to prison. But they don't mind that because um, in America, we have this thing called seminary. When you're a minister and you want to go through ministry and they want to send you to seminary where you go through a couple of years of biblical training and then you're qualified to pastor is what they say. But in, in China, they don't say that you go through seminary. They say that prison is our seminary. So the only pastors they can trust and they can believe are the ones that have spent time in prison for the gospel of Jesus. Just think about that for a second. Now here are these 100 to 150 house church pastors. They're gathered, they're gathered uh, um, in this compound and this guy is sharing with them and talking to them and hearing their stories of persecution and what do they do to make it through, which we'll talk a little bit in weeks to come. And as he's talking about the, you know, what, is it, what does it take to survive this kind of persecution? He talks, he begins talking about other places in the world where people are persecuted for the cause of Jesus. As a matter of fact, where they're killed immediately if you're a Christian, you're not sent to prison. You're killed immediately. And he mentioned to them the names of two countries that he had personally visited that he knew that any believer there would immediately be killed if they were discovered. And he mentioned it to these Chinese pastors. He goes to bed that night and he wakes up in the morning to a ruckus. He hears loud wailing and crying and, and moaning. And he gets up and he walks and he looks out in the courtyard at 5 a.m. There are all of these house church pastors laying on the ground, moaning, crying, wailing. He says to somebody near him, what's going on? And they said, just listen, just listen. 
He didn't speak Chinese. He didn't know how to do it. But, but, you know, he heard something over and over again out of those that were wailing and crying. He heard the names of those two countries he had told him about the night before. And these people were up at 5 a.m. in the morning beseeching God for God to build a remnant in countries that were worse persecuted than they were. And they're under severe persecution. So the next time you think you're alone, just realize there are people in China that'll wake up at five in the morning to intercede for people they've never met and to wail and cry for hours until God breaks through in mercy. And they're here standing with you. So if you ever think you're alone, just understand, you don't know what alone means. There are other people that have prayed a much greater price than you, and they're willing to stand no matter what it costs them. So second of all, that's the kindness of God. Let's look at the sternness of God. Sternness. Second is sternness. The question is, did they go too far? Again, I ask Romans 11, 11. So he asked the question again, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Did they stumble? So he's asking the same question again of the Jews. Did they go too far? Did they go too far? Did they stumble so they can never fall? And once again, Paul answers, Meganoito. No way. Heck no. Whatever. As strong as you want to make the no, it's a no. No they did not go too far. But the question is, since you keep asking that question, can I go too far? Can you go too far? Can a person go too far? That, you know, God loves you and God gave Jesus for you, but you go too far. That answer, that you can read about it in Hebrews chapter six, verses one through four. There's a great answer there. But I want us to read about this from second Peter chapter two, verse 20 says, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that would be a person that's saved, right? A person who has escaped the corruption of this world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome. They are worse off at the beginning than they were, or worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. What does that say to you? It says to me, says very clearly that a person not only can go too far, but if you go too far, it's worse for you. If you know Jesus as your savior and your Lord and you run so far away, it is actually worse. Verse 21, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returning to its vomit. Anybody ever see that happen? Isn't that disgusting? A dog pukes and then goes and eats it. What in the world are they thinking when they do that? I mean, come on, seriously. Anybody ever puke, look down in the toilet and go, hmm, dinner. That's disgusting, isn't it? But yet the Bible says that that same level of disgust we ought to have towards somebody and towards the attitude that says, I can know the redeeming grace of Jesus and turn away from it. It's worse in the end. Would have been better to not even be saved. And as a sow returns, sow that is washed returns to wallowing in her mud. So the, the answer is, can a person go too far? The answer is yes, you can. Paul declares that rejection and judgment on Israel is for a purpose. So when, when he's talking about can a person go too far, you can. Can I, can I say one more thing before we move on? If you're worried about going too far, you haven't. If you're worried about it, you haven't. If you're worried about it, you need to do something to fix it. But you haven't gone too far. 
because that's God drawing you back. Remember his kindness and his sternness. So let's go, Romans 11, 11. Rather, uh, I asked that they stumble to fall beyond recovery, not at all. And then he says, rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So what? I, there are some things in the Bible I don't understand, I don't even like. Can I say that? All right, so my wife hasn't been paying me enough attention. So I just decided to go to the waitress down the street and flirt with her a little bit so that my wife would pay attention to me. How many of you think that's going to work really good for me? That's not going to work, right? Right? But yet Paul is using an illustration a lot like that. He's saying because, you know, Israel rejected, the Jews rejected Jesus. I'm going to go hang out with the Gentiles until Israel gets jealous enough to do something about it. I, like I said, there are some things in the Bible I, I just don't understand. And God is a jealous God. Don't forget that. And then he, he uses an illustration. This is, this is where I really want to camp for a couple of minutes. He now uses an illustration to talk about how this works. And uh, I think Paul was using language there that um, in verse 11, I think he was using language to sort of shake us and wake us up. I'm not sure it's meant to be taken so literal as much as it is to shake us up. Because what he wants to announce here in verse 15 says, for their rejection... If Israel's rejection brought about reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the part of the dough offers as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And then he gets to this illustration that we want to camp on. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Root, root. You know, trees, they have roots, right? If their roots aren't working, they die because the roots are what pulls the nap and the sap and the nourishment and all the minerals and waters and fluids out of the ground. And then it sends them through a trunk. And then that trunk then goes to the branches. Y'all follow me here? Roots, trunk, branches. All right. Now he's making an illustration. He's saying if the root of the tree is holy, then the branches are holy. And if some of the branches were broken off because here the root symbolizes God and God's provision and abundance and strength and grounding and all of those things. The roots symbolize God's ample ability to give us all we need from all of creation. And the, the trunk of the tree is his covenant. The covenant used to be the covenant with Abraham, but Jesus made a new covenant and the new covenant replaced the, the trunk. So the trunk is the covenant of Jesus Christ giving us life eternal. And then the branches represent you and I. And what he's saying this is some of the branches were broken off. So a, an olive tree all throughout the scripture represents Israel and Israel rooted in God, the, 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 brand, the covenant keeping life. And then the branches were individual Jews. And it says that these branches of this olive tree were cut off. They were broken off and a wild olive shoot may have been grafted or have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. We'll come back to this. Let me tell you a story, okay? Because I can see some of you are like, I don't get it. My grandpa had an apple tree behind his house. It was a green apple tree. And those green apples were the sourest, bitterest things you ever taste in your life. You take, they were about that big around and you take a bite of them and your whole mouth would just pucker up. It was 
Woo, it was sour. Anybody ever had a sour, sour apple? I'm not talking a good sour apple. I'm talking a bad one. Now, me and my wife and my kids, we like going over in the fall to the farm and getting those apples, you know, those green apples, and you pull them off the tree, rub them, and take a bite. And they're sort of tart, but they're sweet. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Well, my grandpa had a tree that produced those little bitty sour, nasty apples. And what he did was he went to one of those farms and he asked them for a couple of branches. So he did this. He cut those branches off and he went back to his tree and he, he cut off some branches off of his tree and he took those good branches that produced those sweet, delicious, big apples and he, he cut a slice where that branch used to be and he stuck the branch into the tree and then he wrapped it with a, a tape of some sort and he bound it up and he held it onto the, the tree and before long, what happened like a scar, the tree since sat there and, and bound up those branches became living out of this tree that was in existence. Are y'all following me here? It's called grafting and that's what happened. All right, so my grandpa had this old, nasty, bitter apple tree. He put in this beautiful branch and this beautiful branch that produced these beautiful apples gets hugged into this tree. It's now getting a life. The scars healed up. It's strong, it's holding it and it begins to produce apples. And you wanna know what it produced? Nasty little sour, rotten apples. Do you know why? Because the source of the fruit is not in the branch, it's in the root. It flows through the trunk into the branch. And even though the branch had the capacity to produce something awesome, it produced something lousy because it was in a nasty tree with nasty roots. It was the sap of the tree that produced it. What Paul is using here is an analogy. And he's saying this, is that God is our roots. There's no nasty fruit that comes out of God. It's a beautiful root system. He is our provider. He is all we need. The trunk is solid. It's the covenants of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and our participation with him. And we are to be grafted in. God said it was made for the Jews. The Jews didn't listen. They didn't enter into it by faith. So he took the saw. He cut them off. He made a slice in the covenant. And he put you and I by faith because we believe we are grafted into that branch and we're grafted into that, that trunk that produces the fruit. So he says this, you, if you want to get arrogant and you think you're something, just remember you don't support the root, but the root supports you. And if, if you say, well, then God cut them off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, that's true, but God, it says right here, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you, you stand by faith. But notice the rest of this. You stand by faith, but do not be arrogant, but tremble. Do not, can you go to the next slide? Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. I, I don't know why that's not in the slides. But verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. If God cut them off, he'll cut you off if you don't do what he told you to do. Now, Jesus used the story a lot like this. Jesus used the story. It's in the book of John and he's talking about the vine and the branches. Look what Jesus said. He said, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener and he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. 
You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. The branch, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers and such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So here's, here's the whole thing. God has provided for us all we need for life. He's provided for us mercy, salvation, grace, provision. If we need something, we ask. He provides it. He is the root system that provides. The God who controls the universe has enough to give you everything you need to live your life for him. That provision is there. If you're attached to the covenant of Jesus Christ and you're in the trunk of the tree, then you being grafted in, even though you may not fit, even though you're, if we would have taken a, a, a branch off of my grandpa's nasty tree and we would have grafted it into one of those good trees over on Apple Hill Farms, guess what? It would produce a better version of fruit than it ever produced on the old free tree because even though it wasn't natural to this new tree, the sap flowing through it would give it something worth eating. And God says that's what he wants to do to you is provide for you an opportunity to produce fruit. He wants your life to be fruitful and useful and blessed. And he gives you this opportunity. But know this, if you don't produce fruit, he's going to cut you off too. That's what it says, right? Did, did, I read that right. If you, don't cut, if you don't produce fruit, if you get clogged up, a lot of us are trying to do our lives. We're, we're like the tree branches here and our connection points here. And we're out here on the end saying, make money have a good family, live awesome life. And we're out here living this way. We're so concerned with the fruit out here on the end. And what Jesus says, quit worrying about the fruit, worry about your connection to the root. Get back to your connection with God, to your commitment to him, to your faithfulness to him, to your belief in him, your mercy and your, your, uh, your grace that you receive from him. And he will cause you to produce fruit. And if you don't call it produce fruit and you're connected, you know what he's going to do? He's going to trim you up because you're too busy. Some of us, we need little pruning. Now, I understand pruning because my mom had a crepe myrtle tree. Could you put a picture of that? That's a crepe myrtle bush. Now, the one at my house, it was about that big around at the base. And there were all of those growths popping out of it. It was huge. It was about 15 to 20 feet tall. And it got so big that it, it was there before I was born. That crepe myrtle tree was there before I was born. And I mean, it, it's supposed to be beautiful like this, but it got so big and just leafy and it was struggling. I hated it because those branches would fall over and it hit me in the head as I was mowing. Anybody mow grass other than me? Man, when I mow grass, I hate to get hit in the head by branches. Am I the only person? So you know what I did? I did what everybody does that, that gets hit in the head by branches when you're mowing. I took my chainsaw out there. Come on, Dan. Dangerous Dan. You know what I'm talking about. You've, you've helped me cut a few things up and down, right? Yeah. So I took my chainsaw. This man can get tractors stuck where nobody else in the world can get them stuck. Dangerous Dan right there. History of that. Anyway, 
took my chainsaw and I trimmed it down about this big. It was about 18 feet tall. I took it down to here. And my mom came home from work. And let me tell you, I fear God. I, I fear snakes and I fear an angry woman. And I saw, I, I love my mother, but the level of anger I saw that day is something you do not ever want to face in your life. She thought I'd killed her crepe myrtle bush. She thought it was beautiful. It said at the end of the driveway and she was mad. Oh, she was mad. Fire shooting out of those black eyes. I thought I was going to die. I would never see my next birthday. It was one of those days. Come on. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Yeah. Well, my mom was mad at me until next spring. Cause you know what happened next spring? See that bush, see how it's all flowered up? That bush that wasn't given any flowers the next spring grew about two feet and flowers were everywhere. And my mom said, that bush has never looked so beautiful because some of us, some of us were so worried about all the stuff at the end of the branches and God's pruning you. He's taking his chainsaw and he's cutting some stuff out of your life and you're complaining, God, this hurts, I don't like it. Well, God's cutting it away so you can go back to bearing fruit again because you're all concerned about bearing fruit and he just wants you to stay connected to him. All right, let's end this, right? Let's land this plane. So he gives the answer. God may have to cut Israel off, but he hasn't forgotten Israel. See, God's desire is for the salvation of all Israel. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 says this, says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. God, our Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Let, let, let's handle something here. All Israel will be saved. I want to remind you, Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says that all of God's gifts and his call are not, irre, are, they're irrevocable. God will not reject you. He will not turn you away. God will not turn you away, but you can turn him away. And, and this passage says this, all Israel will be saved. There are people who have built theologies out of this, all right? And, and I'm gonna give you two terms here real quick. And I wanna tell you that I, I embrace certain truths from both of them and I reject truths from both, uh, principles of both of them, all right? One is Zionism that says all Israel will be saved. Therefore, all Jews will eventually be saved regardless of whether or not they believe in Jesus. That isn't even biblical, but yet God is not done with Israel. So I reject Zionism at its core, but yet I understand some of the truths of Zionism are true. I also reject replacement theology at its core. Replacement theology says God is done with Israel and has replaced Israel only with the Gentiles and believing Christians. I, I, I would say there's some truth to that, but that's God has not rejected Israel. Come on, I, we got a guy here at our church that recently got saved, he's a Jew. God has not re forgotten Israel. So I think Paul defines what it means to be um, a part of Abraham's covenant. In Romans chapter nine, verse six, he says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And in Philippians chapter three, three, he talks about we are the circumcision who worship God in truth. You see, uh, you, just because you are a Jew by birth doesn't mean you're a Jew committed to following Jesus Christ. Because remember, Ishmael was not a follower of Christ, uh, was not a, a person of the promise but Isaac was. So they were both descendants of Abraham, but yet one was chosen, one was not. And just because a person is descended from Israel doesn't mean that they are a person of faith. So I think I, I had to do that theologically for the two or three of you that might understand what I'm talking about there. Be careful either side of that that you get into because there's errors either way.
All right? Pastoral message. Here it is. The final grand finale is God is stern and he's kind. He's kind enough to continue showing his love, but he's stern enough to cut you off if you continue to reject him. Romans 11.30 says this, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, you have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive the mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God has bound everyone to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. The whole point of this is this. God wants to have mercy on you. He wants to show you his kindness. He wants to show you his love. And he's leveled the playing field. Jew, Gentile, uh, black, white, yellow. It doesn't matter. Rich, poor, male, female. It doesn't matter. God has leveled the playing field. We are all equal in the sight of Jesus. We have all the ground at the foot of the cross is completely level. And he's done this in such a way that he can have mercy on everybody, but you have to receive it. Now, I read a story this past week about a guy named Dirk Willems. If you wonder what mercy looks like, the guy's name was Dirk Willems. It was 1569. He was a Dutch Anabaptist and he was confined in prison for his faith. The Roman Catholic Church and the local authorities threw him in prison for practicing believer baptism instead of infant baptism in the Roman church. And he was thrown into a, a prison, except the prison was in a tower and he was in a tower and a castle. And in this tower in the castle, he's there. It's a prison. They don't feed him. He loses a bunch of weight. He's sick. One day he finds a way to escape. And he escapes out of the castle and he goes down and he's running across the frozen moat, the waters of the moat that surrounded the castle. And as he's running across it, because he's so gaunt and thin from being starved, he's able to run on the ice without breaking the ice. But the guard that followed him was not quite so thin and gaunt. He had been eating his meals. And as he runs across the ice, the ice cracks under the weight of his pressure and he falls into the freezing waters and he begins to cry out for help. And Dirk hears almost at the edge, he hears the guard crying for help and pleading for help. And he knows that a couple of steps this way, he's free. And if he goes back, he's probably gonna die. But Dirk decides to risk his life to go back and save a man and to show mercy to somebody that didn't deserve it. And when Dirk returns and he shows mercy and he rescues the man out of the water, he was repaid by being burned at the stake just a week later. And Dirk paid with his life to rescue another man's life. And that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2000 years ago. Your life was rejecting of God and you were certain, oh, you were certain. Like Jonathan Edwards preached, you were certain to be burned by the fires of hell. And God in his mercy provided a way of escape for you. God bound everybody over to disobedience so he could have mercy on you all because you see, he's very stern. He knows how to punish those that reject him. But in his mercy, he desires to love you all.
So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me today. If you're in this room today, you have not made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. Today is your day. You have not gone too far. The Holy Spirit is dealing with you right now. You have not gone too far. You're watching me online. The Holy Spirit is dealing with you. You know it. Come on. It is your time to believe. Text believe to that number. If you're in this room, you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. I want you to lift your hand. I want to pray with you right now. You want to give your life to Jesus today. And you want, yes, yes. Are there others? Are there others in this room who want to give Jesus your life today? In the name of Jesus, there is life and hope and there is supply for you. Yes. Anyone else? Come on, this is your chance. Everybody prays together at Harvest Ridge. Nobody prays alone. Could you pray with me? Dear Jesus, I give you my life. Thank you for your mercy. Give me your grace. I need you. I trust you. I believe in you. Thank you for giving me your life. Now you have mine. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, you meant it. Jesus rescued you and gave you eternal life. I'm going to ask you to stand with me because I think there's a fitting reply to this. The Apostle Paul does this. You ready? Here's his reply. He gets to the end of chapter 11. He is so excited. He bursts out with, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Come on, none of us have. And then he just bursts out and says, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. What a way to end. Can we do this this morning? Can we just lift our hands? Could we worship? Could we sing this doxology and mean it in the name of Jesus? Amen.